Hi everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and next to me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm really excited today. We have uh, another special guest and... Uh, I think it also helps when when the weather is like this in Stockholm. It's like the best best day of the year so far. Yeah, today we have the great pleasure of speaking to Andrew Wagner, who we met in Omaha. And Andrew is a dedicated gamer and a passionate advocate for economics education. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Wagner Road Capital Management, a Minnesota-based registered investment advisor. And he has a master's degree in economics from Kansas State University. And he is the author of The Economics of Online Gaming, the book that we will talk about today. And why have we chosen this title? This is the first uh, economics book uh, that we have discussed so far in the podcast. And uh, we think it's a subject that is really important for, for investors. Uh, having an education in microeconomics uh, myself, I also know that most normal people think uh, it can be quite dull to read the theories. And I think Andrew has really realized this and, and have written a book about, about most of the important topics of economics, such as supply and demand, opportunity cost, market structure, and so on, and has related this to one of his passions. And many, I mean, many share his passion, so I think it's, it really makes sense. And that is of gaming. It's also written in a biography type of way, making it a light read. As gaming is something many young people can relate to, I, I really think this can help their understanding. And I'm not a gamer myself, but with the limited experience I have, I think it's still really clicked for me. And Eddie, how does this book relate to the Red Eye's quality rating? So a basic understanding of economics uh, helps with evaluating a business and its role in the market. So the principal agent problem, for example, which we will uh, talk about in conversation, I think, is one example of why we give a higher rating to companies with a strong owner and preferably owner operators. We are curious and excited to have the author of The Economics of Online Gaming on the show. Here comes our conversation with Andrew Wagner. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So where are you today? I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. Can you tell our, our listeners a bit about yourself? Uh, that's probably the hardest question I've ever had to answer. <laughs> <laughs> On LinkedIn, I describe myself as a writer, a researcher, an analyst, and a, a passionate advocate for economics education. And, and really, that last one, I think, is the reason that I'm on the podcast right now. And uh, maybe we'll get into that later. Definitely. And I also uh, manage money for a few investors, and uh, I have a master's degree in economics, which I actually was able to get because I wrote this book. And maybe that's an interesting story you guys will want to hear later. Uh, but in my personal life, I do a lot of reading. I like to go hiking. I take road trips, and I repair old computers. So I'm I'm a little bit of a technology enthusiast, and maybe that's good enough to start with. Yeah, definitely. And you're also a visitor of Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholders meeting, where we met. Right. Um, the the shareholders meeting is something that I've been going to since 2007, and every time I go, I meet a new person who absolutely changes my life, and it's worth it every time. And, and how did your passion for investing start? 
So my passion for investing started with a video game. And I think I was about 12, maybe 13. And I started playing this game called Railroad Tycoon 2. And the point of the game is you start a railroad business and you connect different cities, you manage the business, you compete with other railroads, and you kind of build a railroad empire. And it gives you a little bit of a taste of how that kind of business worked in the 1800s. But what really interested me in this game is that on the side, it had a functioning stock market. So you could personally invest in your railroad company. You could benefit from the success of your business. You could invest in your competitors, do things like perform hostile takeovers, manipulate the stock by buying and selling, things like that. And I was basically just manipulating the stock market in this game. I would do that more than actually playing. So you could do things like buy stock on margin and then hope that your business does well enough that you don't get margin called. And I could buy a ton of stock in a competitor and then place a takeover bid with my company, which was just a a stupid, easy way to make money that you definitely can't do in the real world right now. And sometimes some strange things would happen, like the stock price would be lower than the amount of cash that the business has in the bank. So I could buy back all the stock and make my person really wealthy. And so I just, I got really interested in the stock market from doing a bunch of things that might not even be legal to do in the real world, but it was fun to play around with inside a game. But then I became interested in real world investing when I read a book called The Warren Buffett Way. And from my perspective, that book was just talking about things that I had already been familiar with from playing this game when I was like 13. And from then on, I was absolutely hooked on it. And how did you get that book into your hands? That's also a funny story. So I was in school and I had to do a report on, I don't remember which class it was, but I had to do a a report on a wealthy person. And at the time, Bill Gates was the wealthiest person in the world. And I said, everybody knows about Bill Gates. Who's this guy that's number two? I'm going to write a report about him. It was Warren Buffett. And then I thought, wow, this guy is really interesting. I'm surprised I've never heard of him. Yeah, we had Robert Hagstrom on the on the podcast. Um, let's go in a bit to your book, The Economics of Online Gaming. Uh, I think it's um, just what you told us now. I think it's really, I mean, I think maybe the older generation don't really appreciate how much you can learn from from playing a game that it actually resembles the real world quite a lot. And I mean, you mentioned the the game you played, which was from the 1800s. And it, it seemed like from what I've been reading uh, from historical records about the 1800s, that was more or less how, how it worked then. So things that are maybe not legal now was legal then. And, and uh, I think also some, some of the things you mentioned are, are really something that happens 
today as well. Uh, but about your, your book, from reading the title, I thought that I was going to read about how online gaming companies actually make money. And I was positively surprised when I realized that, that it wasn't because I'm, I'm as you, I'm, I have a degree in, in economics and I'm, I'm an economics nerd as well as an investing world. So, yeah. Can you explain what, what led you to write uh, the book? I actually wrote the book because people asked me to write it, which I think is maybe an unusual way to become an author. And I can explain how that happened a little bit. I was in college. It was my sophomore year. And I was at a Christmas party. And I was explaining to my classmates why I chose to study economics. And I was telling them the story of how I played this game, how I learned everything I know about economics, how I could be in class and the professor is talking about an economic idea, and I'm thinking, I've already seen this before. I know what this is about. And so I told them the story, and they said, you really need to write this down. We think it could help people who don't understand economics. This is a fun story. And it was funny to me because I had actually just deleted all of my data about a month before that. So it was a story I, I thought it had absolutely no value to anybody else. But they said, no, please write this down. So I did. And then I, I had this paper that was probably 120 pages about how I learned economics in this game. And I thought, what, what can I do with this? So I brought it to a professor who didn't know me at all. And I, I basically told him, I have a paper I'm working on. I want an honest opinion. I'd like to know if this has any value. And he thought when I said paper, I was talking about 10 pages. So when I gave him something that was 120 pages, he, he said, this is insane. Why would you do this? <laughs> uh, but he, he actually decided to read it. And when he gave it back to me, he said, never make anybody read this whole thing ever again. So <laughs> I think my first review was probably my favorite. <laughs> and he encouraged me to take one chapter out of the book and use it as some kind of academic paper. So I used one chapter as my senior thesis in economics, which... I ended up presenting at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. And then the university was so excited about this idea and the attention it was getting that they offered to pay for me to go to grad school. So uh, the story I thought had no value ended up being the thing that led to me getting a master's degree in econ. And I just kept working on it over the next 10 years or so to make it something that uh, people should read instead of something no one should read. <laughs> and uh, I kept working on it until I found a textbook publisher. That's really a unique and very impressive piece of work you have uh, compiled. And I'm sure now our listeners are curious to hear what, what is the story of the book? So the book is about a massively multiplayer online game. Gamers know this is an MMO called Eternal Lands. And if you've ever heard of RuneScape, it's very similar to that game, but it was much smaller. 
and it only had about 3,000 players. And the book is about my experience of playing that game and the economic ideas that I was being introduced to as I played this game. And the story inside it is about how I started in the game. It's called a guild, but I, I really think of it as a business that I named Rich. And I grew this business into a monopoly by driving my competitors out of business. So the story is about how I did that and then the real world connections you can find from having that kind of experience and the way you can learn economics just from playing video games. And what were the key factors behind your dominance uh, when you created this monopoly? Uh, there are there are a few of them, actually. Some of them are a little more philosophical, I think, and cultural than, than economics-based. I think the, the biggest one was that I made a conscious choice in this game to play the part of a villain, which I think is something that most people are not totally comfortable with. But that gave me the freedom and the creativity to think of different ways I could play this game, where if I'm adopting the persona of a villain, what can I do? How can I play this game? Whereas people who are playing as a hero, they wouldn't be able to use all the same strategies and maybe not even think of the same strategies. So the, the biggest thing about uh, philosophically was I decided to play as the villain. But then there was a little bit of a cultural aspect to the way I was running this, this guild. And it was that every other guild had restrictions on who could join their team. So you had to be a powerful player before anyone would accept you. And I thought that that kind of restriction was not a good idea. So my strategy was to accept everyone, no matter how powerful they are, everyone is accepted, everyone can join. And what that did actually was I would have players join my team before they became powerful. So suddenly that pipeline that other, other guilds, other teams had to get powerful players wasn't going to work for them anymore because they would join my team and then they would become powerful players and they would not leave to join someone else's team. And I didn't really care who they were as long as they would help me with my plans and help me work on the projects. And, and that actually played into the economic aspects, aspects of what I was trying to do because I needed a really big team to implement the strategy that I came up with. And the strategy was basically make my costs lower than everybody else and then drive them out of the market by having lower prices. And the, the economic concepts that I used was... Uh, the first one was vertical integration, where I guess if I give a little bit of background on the game, uh, it's kind of medieval-based, and people have swords and shields, kind of weapons and armor. And I had a production process where you have to 
get all of the coal and iron ore yourself and then transform that into iron bars and steel bars and then transform that into weapons and armor that I would sell in the market. And it's a lot more cost efficient to do all of those steps yourself. So from an economic standpoint, that's the idea of vertical integration and you can you can have lower costs that way. But then the other way was economies of scale, which no one else was really doing. And that's what I needed this really big team for. So it would be a lot of people collecting the coal and iron ore and a lot of people producing steel and iron bars. And then a lot of people producing weapons and armor. And that made my costs dramatically lower than everybody else. And then having lower costs meant I could charge lower prices and playing the villain made me comfortable charging lower prices and intentionally driving other people out of the market. So I think that's a pretty good summary of the, the story. Super interesting. Uh, I just have a, a, a quick uh, comment. It, I mean, you managed to to come in to, to, uh, to get a master degree because of this. But from my thinking, you could have become like a CEO or something. It, it really shows that you understand strategy and, and so on. So just a philosophical question. In the future, do you think companies will search for, for new managers from games? I really hope that that becomes a trend. I have heard of people going into interviews and saying, I was a guild leader in a game. I know how to manage people. I know how to tactically get groups of people to do different things. And these things I've read about are always from the person conducting the interview. And they always dismiss that experience. And they say, that's not valuable. That's not real world. That That's in a game. It's not the same. And I really hope that that perspective is changing because I think that it might not be the same in terms of the specifics, but the skills that you learn from doing that, that kind of stuff on a conceptual level, I think is extremely valuable. And I really hope that that becomes more popular. Yeah, I think, but as I said in, before, I think part of it is probably that it's because of how the older generation look at at gaming, for example, it's, I think, in many ways looked down at, and it's a huge difference between different games. So, I also hope that that, that will change. Um, going back to the to the book, uh, when being in such a strong position as as you were, it felt really like no one could defeat you. But uh, as in the real world, things change quite quickly. And uh, yeah, describe how how the guild managed to lose its its uh, position in the end. So I might be bragging a little bit when I say the only reason they lost their position is because I stopped playing. But I, I really think that that's, that's the right answer. Essentially what happened is I left and the guild broke up into different factions and they couldn't agree exactly on who should be the, ladder, uh, the leader and how things should be run. And what happened is players started to leave my guild and start their own guilds. 
And then these other guilds would be doing the exact same strategy. So they all had the same way of competing. They all had the same strategy they were doing. And then I returned to find that there had been four or five basically identical copies of what I had already been doing from people who learned how to do it from me. So I I think the advantage was lost when I got done with the game and left. And then other people who were trained by me started doing the same thing that I was doing. That that's what I think anyway. But do you think so so you think that if, if you if you managed that advantage that you had better, I mean in terms of maybe executing the strategy and, and so on, then then you would have kept it. I think I would have kept it, and the reason why is because uh, over time I've realized that it was a bit of a cultural phenomenon as well, where one of the things I was doing really well was managing the culture inside my team, and I think that I was probably better at doing that than any of the actual conceptual economic strategies but the the next people in charge didn't necessarily want to manage the culture what they wanted to do was become personally powerful and that just didn't work and how did you do the cultural part what aspects did you pay attention to and so on so when you're looking at a game like this everyone is essentially a volunteer so they have to consciously decide that they like to be around you and that they like to be around the other people who are on the team. And I just made sure that people liked being around me and people liked being around everybody else. And not everyone had the same perspective on that. Some of them didn't care if people liked them. They just wanted to become powerful. Yeah, we can see some examples of that in the real world and the business world as well. So how much are you paying attention to the cultural aspect when you are investing? Well, from the cultural aspect, uh, I I do somewhat, but uh, it's it's more about what I'm trying to avoid. And I'm really trying to avoid businesses that people absolutely hate working for more than looking for something that people love working at. Because if you're trying to find a place that people love working, that's going to be really hard. But if management is investing some kind of resources into making their company a great place to work, I always feel really good about that. Uh, The thing that I try to avoid is if it's an actively hostile situation Uh, that kind of business, even if it's successful, could end up having some serious problems in the future. One event that that stuck to my mind was that you faced uh, this boycott after a few of your members behaved unethically in the game uh, against Ember, the moderator. Maybe you can start with just explaining this situation because I, I think it was really interesting. Sure. I'm not 100% sure that they thought they were being unethical, actually. So inside this game there are designated areas where you can attack other players. And in the rest of the game, the it doesn't allow you to attack anyone. 
And this character named Ember was a moderator who was testing a punishment. And the punishment basically made it so that anyone could attack you anywhere. And some of my members saw this person and knew they could be attacked. So they just started attacking her. And they didn't know she was a moderator. They actually probably thought that she was a player who had been punished. So this is a player who's being punished. This, per this player is not a good player. This is an evil player. We can attack them and we can contribute to their punishment. And they just kept doing that over and over again. And then a complaint came out later where Ember was very upset with, by this. And she said, I told them to stop attacking me. They wouldn't stop. But I'm not sure if she ever told them that she was a moderator or what the situation was. But the fact that they had attacked a moderator made the game, other players turn against my team. And that was, I think, the moment when I thought, if they're going to see us as villains, let's play as a villain and let's really lean into this new reputa reputation that we have and see where we can go with it. So I don't know that I would consider it totally unethical since it was an ambiguous situation, but it really opened up the possibilities of the other things that I ended up doing later. And I mean, we see many companies coming into uh, situations like that. For example, you mentioned Monsanto and, and the problems that uh, that uh, yeah was uh, experienced after being bought by by buyer um, and these events when when a company is, is under a boycott um, often cause a lot of negativity of course um, and can lead both to, to opportunities for investors but it can also be a trap of course and how do you look at boycotts from that angle I mean uh, can, do you have any way on evaluating if a boycott actually will lead to a terminal value destruction? From my perspective, the larger the business and the more diversified the business, the less impact a boycott is going to have. A boycott might cause a company to change the way they do business. And in the case of Monsanto, I'm not sure if they even changed the way that they do business. They might have just changed their name and people forgot about it. And some businesses are just not possible to boycott. And you see threats about boycotting businesses all the time. And then you look at all of the products that this company produces and realize it's impossible and then the other thing is, I think that people tend to have a really short memory and they'll start boycotting something and then forget about it after a few months. So it's not really a risk, I think, for most publicly traded businesses. But if you're talking about a local restaurant that only has one location, I could see that being uh, devastating, uh, really damaging to a smaller business like that. But I've never really considered it much of a risk for most publicly traded companies. So more more like an opportunity then, possibly that the like the availability availability bias causes us to maybe yeah think that it's it's uh, more damaging than it it really will be for the value. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that if there's some kind of boycott being announced and the market reacts to it, the market is probably overreacting. And in the game, you created a monopoly and uh, that is the best moat any company or any <laughs> team or whatever can have. <laughs> so we're curious to hear what else you have learned from the game when it comes to competitive advantages. Um, yeah, I think the most important thing that I learned when it comes to competitive advantages is thinking about why people choose to use certain products and services. Are they doing it just because the price is better? Are they doing it because the product or the service is better? Are they doing it because that's what all their friends are doing? Or are they doing it because they don't have any choice and that's their only option? So you can think about competitive advantages just by asking those questions. Why are people choosing this product? And I guess everyone's favorite one is if they're doing it because they don't have any other choice, that's a really powerful competitive advantage. I was just thinking that the risk is that they are very unsatisfied and then someone will come and take that position. Yes, that's a significant risk. And you would hope it's also an opportunity if you happen to find the that competitor who has the better option. So at least in this game, the markets were based entirely on price. So the competitive advantage was having the best price. And to have the best price, you can achieve that by having the lowest cost. And then if you're a manager, you start looking at, how do I have the lowest cost? What can I do to lower my costs? But if you're asking a different question, is the service better? Why is the service better? Those other things. So I think of competitive advantages just by asking, why are people doing business with this company? And how do you evaluate that? Well, it is usually at an industry level. So it's it's almost always based on the industry that the business is in. So if you're talking about a restaurant, for example, then maybe they're going to this restaurant because the food is better. And maybe they're going to this restaurant because the price is better. So it's not always going to be totally the same. But at an industry level, that's where I think those questions are answered most of the time. Yeah, because either you can go out in the real world and talk to people or do surveys with people and stuff like that. Or you can just try to talk to management and, and see what they are thinking. But what is your approach there? I think that it's more valuable to talk to the actual customers uh, than the management. The management usually knows, but the customers are more passionate about telling you why they're using the service, especially if they have no other choice. Those are very passionate customers if they can't use anyone else. But are you actively doing that like uh, in your role as an investor? Are you... Or do you use any service for that? I usually try to find uh, message boards where people who are using a service talk about what they like about it, what they don't like about it, more than uh, doing surveys. And 
if I can, I, I usually like to talk to some of those people personally. When we when we speak about moats, um, management is often not mentioned as a moat because it's viewed as short term. Even though, uh, as as we will come to in in the game, you you um, you said that that a manager that really can continue to execute will be able to to nurture that that moat. Uh, and what happened in the game when you left it uh, has been seen, for example, with. Uh, I'm not an expert in Starbucks, but I've just seen that they have had problems a few times, and then the CEO Howard Schultz have have come back, yeah, he have come back from and, and take taken over the helm a few times. How central do you think the management is in in managing the moat? I think it depends on the type of business, but I think it makes a really big difference. I think a strong moat can be maintained by an average manager, but I really personally feel that you should get better results with better managers. And I generally group management into kind of one of three categories. So you at least want a manager that's thinking about the business the way that an owner would. But it's even better if you have a management with a substantial personal investment in the company. So it means they're thinking like an owner, but they also have to think like an owner because they have a big stake in, in what the outcome is. But in my opinion, the best managers are the company founders because they have a unique incentive to make sure that the business is successful because this business is their entire life. They might see it as their legacy and they aren't necessarily motivated by the financial success of the business, but if this business fails, that looks bad for me personally as a founder. So I really like owner of founder-led companies because they tend to see it in a slightly different way, I think, than even a really good manager would see it. And could you, I mean, as we have you here as a, like a, a master degree in economics and you've written this book and, and you describe this, uh, the, yeah, the common principal agent problem. Maybe can, can you just give our listeners a bit of a background to what the principal agent problem is and how you relate that maybe to, to uh, founders in, in businesses? I think that's a really good question. The principal agent problem, just to summarize, it's when you have someone in charge and you have to be conscious of the fact that they might have an incentive to put their own personal interests ahead of the interests of the business. So you risk having them do things that will benefit themselves, but will not benefit the company. And this is something that could still happen with uh, a business owner or business founder if maybe they just want to get rich at the expense of all the other shareholders. So the principal agent problem kind of exists everywhere, even if the management's really good. But I still think that when the founder is in charge, they have a unique perspective on the business and the industry. And if they do consider that business to be their legacy, the risk of them only acting in their own interests is a lot lower. So I have a really strong preference for founder-led businesses. 
And how, how worried are you when companies uh, go into succession? So when a founder leaves and, and maybe there's not a no one in the family that, that can take over the helm? Well, that hasn't really come up in any of the businesses I've seen, but I, I know that Berkshire Hathaway is definitely getting close to that because Buffett is way beyond the average retirement age. So I think that part of a good manager's responsibility is to make sure that they're prepared for something like that. And you would hope that the person who is next in line has already been chosen and has been working with the upper management for some time already. And uh, from my perspective, if it's a good manager and I know that they have been focused on succession, I would trust their judgment to choose the person who they feel would do things the same way they would. So it hasn't been a huge concern for me, although I'm not sure if anyone could fully replace Warren Buffett, I guess. <laughs> it, will, it will be a tough job for sure. But besides being brilliant at gaming and economics, you also run Wagner Road Capital Management. And this is a registered investment advisor based in St. Paul, Minnesota. So can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, this, your firm? Well, I think first I need to tell my wife that someone said I was brilliant at something just to <laughs> make sure that she knows. Uh, yeah, I started my firm to basically serve two purposes. So I do consulting with professional money managers as kind of a part-time analyst. So I serve the role of they are growing and they need another analyst, but they don't have the budget for a full-time analyst. And I can fill in part-time. And so I, I do that as part of my business. And I've had it go both ways. I've had it where they became more successful and they were able to get a full-time person. So I, I left and they filled that with a full-time person. And then I've had it where they were not as successful as they hoped. And I left and they could not get a full-time person. So I've I've doing consulting with professional fund managers. And sometimes the consulting projects are more specific. I've had uh, fund managers, for example, just ask me to do an, some industry research for them as a one-time thing. And then I also manage money for a small group of investors with separately managed accounts using my own strategy too. And what are your goals uh, as an investment advisor? That's a really tough question. I, When I first started, I didn't have any specific goals. I just, this is what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to manage money. I wanted to do investment research. I wanted to work with professional investors. I think... Uh, Long-term goals is to have my investment side be so successful that I can't afford to do consulting anymore. I think that's a, a good start. Yeah. And do you have a specific sector or uh, industry that you are looking more at? Or? I don't necessarily look at specific sectors intentionally more than others. It's more about the type of business that I'm looking for. And sometimes certain sectors have more of those than others. 
And I'm also focused on what I understand better, which also makes me biased towards certain sectors other than biased towards some sectors more than others. And I can give you a little quick summary of the type of business I'm looking for. So I I like to find a business that has a strong financial position, which means not very much debt and earns pretty good returns. I like to find a business that has a strong competitive position, which means what does this industry look like and where does this company fit within that industry? And as we've already said, monopolies are, I mean, those are the ones you really like to find. And then I like to see a good management team. And then the last thing is some kind of durable long-term trend that is helping this business forward. So that could be a really big trend. Some of the popular ones today are like electric vehicles, solar technology, telecommuting, plant-based meats. But if it's not a big trend like that, then maybe it's a company that has a really strong position in a certain region and they're expanding to the rest of the country or they have a really strong position in one country and they're expanding to other countries. So that's kind of what I look for. I don't care too much what industry they're in, but if I don't understand it, I kind of write it off anyway. And how is the situation now when we're in a kind of a bear market? Is that affecting your position as an investment consultant and advisor? Uh, well, every time there's a bear market, it becomes a little bit harder to find consulting clients. And I don't know if it's harder or easier to find investors because I haven't been managing money through a bear market before. So we'll see how that goes. Well, we have many fund managers listening to this podcast, I think. So reach out (laughs) to Andrew if you need some help. (laughs) And are there any other aspects of your book that you think are especially relevant for investors and that we haven't mentioned so far? One thing that I noticed as I was writing it is conceptually understanding the different stages of a business and the challenges that go along with each stage of the business. So a startup has very different challenges than a big, strong, established company. And it's not completely comparable to the real world, but I like to think about what stage of life is this business in when I'm looking at it and what kind of challenges are are happening in this industry as the industry matures or as the business matures and how strong is the foundation that they're building on top of. So I think that that is something at least as I worked on the book, it helped me conceptually think about as I'm looking at potential investments, I can be aware of what stage is this company in. And when I think about that, and then I look at the things I've invested in, I realize that I tend to be very attracted to businesses that are 
not quite paying a dividend yet, but in a few years, they might move into that stage where they are. And another aspect of your book that we haven't talked so much about is uh, psychology. And in the book, you say that you have read a lot about psychology. So I'm curious to hear what you have learned from those studies, if you can tell us a bit more. So I have a very long reading list that I maintain, and maybe I should share it. But what I've had to do is summarize all the stuff I've read, because there are so many different biases that we all have, and all these biases have different names, and each one is very specific. So as a personal thing that helped me is I just took all of them and I grouped them into four different categories so that it was a lot easier for me to be conscious of what type of bias might I be having when I'm looking at something. So the, the four categories I put them in, the first one is miscalculations. So basically you take too many mental shortcuts or you do the math wrong or you misunderstand statistics. Second one is avoidance, which is basically trying to avoid information that will make you change your mind or make you feel uncomfortable or trying to avoid information that makes you realize you made a mistake. And then another one that I call social emotional pressures, which is basically doing things because other people are doing them or doing things just because they make me feel good. And then the last one is physical limitations, which I would summarize as you're not going to make as good of decisions if you're stressed out or if you're sick. And I've found it really helpful to summarize all the psychology that I've read into those four categories, because it means I don't have to remember dozens of different types of biases. I can just use those four things as a guide to remind myself how I might be thinking about something. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard anyone group them like that. And are you continuously adding more biases to, to those groups? Yeah, there are people who've done a lot more work on this than me who have probably found... I've, I've seen these categ categorized into... I mean, way too many categories. There, there's probably hundreds of biases. And every time I see one of those, I go, okay, that that is a type of miscalculation. I understand how it works, but now I don't need to remember what it is or any of that stuff. I can just say, oh, this is a miscalculation. And it's a lot easier for me to remember because if there's only four of them, then maybe there's a bunch of different types of things that you're doing, but there, there's just way too many individual biases to even try and recognize one when it's happening to you. And which one of those four would you say is most common for you? Um, well, <laughs> the one that's most common, I think, would be uh, miscalculations. And that's probably most common for most people. And for me specifically, it's I tend to be really overly optimistic. I always think that everything is going to get better. I always think that everything is going to be okay. And I guess when we're in a, a market like we are right now, that type of view is not very popular. But 
I recognize that as a bias that I have, probably my most common bias. And But I would say the most dangerous one would be avoidance because you have to be able to question your own convictions. So if I recognize that I'm probably overly optimistic all the time, I need to make sure that I'm not just only looking at information that confirms my optimism bias. And and more practically, how do you use how do you use that in connection with an important decision? I think that's a great question. I would I think of it like framing. So if you're looking at an investment and you're thinking about how the business is right now and you're comparing it to the way the business used to be or you're comparing it to another business in the same industry, how those questions are framed can make a big difference over whether you think it's a good business or not a good business. So if you're picking comparisons that are all terrible businesses, then it's going to always look good. Or if you're picking uh, comparisons that are not relevant, then it might not quite match up. So I think that's one example of of the way I use it. Interesting. And to go to our final section of, of, of the podcast, uh, we often talk about books. We love books and uh, we love to hear about uh, which uh, books have influenced you the most. So maybe you can bring up a, a few examples of the book that has been most influential for you. Well, I would say if I have to pick one book, the book that influenced me the most was The Warren Buffett Way, because that's the one that really got me started on investing and got me really interested in doing investing. And if I have to pick two books, I would say The Warren Buffett Way and The Warren Buffett Portfolio. So those two books together introduced me to a fundamental style of investing that was accessible to my knowledge at the time and really accelerated my interest in investing. So I would say those two books influenced me more than any other. Robert Hagstrom is really a legend and it was so nice to have him on the podcast. Yeah, and have you have you reread any of those books and how do you think what do you think about rereading books for because I mean now you have completely different perspectives and experiences and how do you I mean do you do that then? So I probably should reread them again. I I haven't fully reread them. I've gone back and looked at them. But what I did was I read those books and then I went through and I read every book that he mentioned in those books where he said these these different ideas and these different investors influenced Warren Buffett and these are the books that he read. So I read those books too. And then I kept going down the chain of reading this investor was influenced by another investor, so I would read their books too. And I never got back to reading the original book again because I've been chasing that chain so far that I just haven't gotten back to it. And I probably should because I think that those books are very uh, valuable and uh, they I think they help people stay calm if you stay focused on the fundamentals. And the psychology list, I'm a bit curious. How long is this list? Can you share like the number one book on that list? 
it might be five pages long oh, wow. of psychology books that I've read. I'm not sure. I'd have to open it again. But if if I think about psychology books and I have to recommend just one or two, the first one I would recommend is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Influence by Robert Cialdini. So if you have to read any books about psychology, I would I would pick those two books and I think you'll you'll learn pretty much what you need to know. Yeah, and would you like to write another book yourself? I <laughs> assuming my wife allows me to, I would would love to write another book. I think I would probably like to package my investment style into a book and and write a book about qualitative aspects of investing. But I also think I might like to write a book that summarizes the stuff that I've learned about psychology. Uh, that would that would only be if my wife allows me to do it, though. But I would love to write another book. Looking forward to that and hope we can we can speak then. And a, a tough question is if there is any book you would like to exist but not write yourself. That that is a tough question, and there's actually a book that I am reading right now called The Age of Propaganda. And it's about how dishonest people use your own biases to trick you into making bad decisions. So it's a little bit of a twist on Cialdini's book. And I think it's an excellent book, but I think it's too long to be approachable for the average person. So I'd love to see a version of that book that is short enough that the average person would be comfortable reading it. I I don't think I could write that book, but I would love to see that instead of, I don't know, 400 pages, maybe 100 pages. And I'd love to see that type of book exist because I think that that is something that people really need help with and don't always know that they need help with it. Good suggestion. Maybe we have some listener out there who can compile that for us. <laughs> so thank you, Andrew, so much for this insightful conversation about you and the economics of online gaming that we recommend everyone to buy. Uh, where can our audience follow you? Uh, well, I'm not on Twitter, but I'm on LinkedIn. So I make an effort to respond to messages from anybody who reads my book and wants to talk to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a blog on my website where I write about different industries if people are interested in following me there uh you can find my book on the publisher's website business expert press or on amazon uh, i found that it's easier to buy it on amazon but if you go on the publisher's website you can read the first two chapters and you can find out if you like the book before you decide to buy it so i usually tell people check out the publisher's website, read the first two chapters. And I haven't had anybody decide they don't want to buy it after reading the first two chapters. So I think that's a pretty good start. Great. We'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. 
This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.